0: (laughs) Little Peter Davis wants a Schwinn Phantom Scrambler. (laughs) Well, he's certainly been good. Aw, Patty Marlin has her heart set on a Schwinn Pixie. (laughs) Carrie Cochran let us down this year. I don't think he deserves a Schwinn. Uh, Give him something else. Clyde! Look, there is 616 Seattle's Morning News. A garage in Kirkland has been transformed into a magical workshop where a man is repairing and restoring bicycles for commuters, for collectors... And for more than a hundred kids who needed transportation and also who needed a connection to the community. This is an uncharacteristically current story for our resident well, historian. I, w- I, I, I wouldn't now. quite
1: go so far as to say that, Dave. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yeah, you don't play your old Twin commercial, then you hear like some update on on Congress or the Supreme Court. So. <laughs> yes, that's true. So tell us about this place. <laughs> well, this is a, you know, that was an old Twin commercial from a few decades ago. You know, the holiday season's a great time to feel nostalgic about all kinds of things from the past. I got to visit this workshop a few weeks ago. It's this magical place filled with bicycles, new and old. Some really old that just sort of pushed all the buttons of nostalgia, not just for Christmas past, but for America and craftsmanship and just the different times that weren't really all that long ago, uh, at least it seems to me anyway. Now, the workshop belongs to a guy named Chris Sharp. He's in his early 50s, been living and breathing bicycles since he was a little kid growing up on Rose Hill in Redmond. He worked in aviation logistics around the world, learned to speak Japanese and Arabic. He spent many years in bike shops before going into business for himself. Now, he knows the mechanical stuff. He's passionate and a knowledgeable expert. He's also generous, which we'll hear more about in a moment. Now, we looked at a bike he was working on for a local collector. It was a Schwinn Corvette from the 1950s. Chris Sharp has an eye for details. And if you pay attention, the stories those details tell.
2: So check this out. Somebody's cuff wore the paint here on the top of the chain guard so much that the paint is literally gone. But the metal's not rusted. It's like it's polished. And the other cool thing here is this Schwinn logo and the Corvette part of the logo, I've been very carefully cleaning because this Schwinn and the Corvette is actually a decal. Uh-huh. But if you see the pinstripes, the pinstripes are actually hand-pulled pinstripes. Wow. So the pinstripes are actually painted. Is that hard back. to do? If you're really experienced, you can do it pretty good. They also sometimes would have a, a form that you'd hold underneath your arm and you'd pull the pinstripes, but... I've pulled pinstripes on motorcycles and stuff and old vintage Harleys. And you, you do need to have a steady hand to do it.
1: You know, Chris's tip for painting pinstripes is you take a deep breath, then you breathe and paint. We use the paintbrush. It's kind of a two-step thing. So And he works on all kinds of bikes, you know, motocross, high-end custom, custom bikes. He has customers who have new bikes shipped directly to him from the factory, and then he does the final assembly. He, he does it all. But he does have this special love for vintage bikes, though he knows, you know, they're not really for everybody.
2: When they find the right owner, there's a level of appreciation to them, and it's not just American bikes like Schwinn, it's the old Western Auto Supply Company bikes that were known as the Western Flyer Um, there was all sorts of great stuff that you would see out of these eras of bikes, Uh, you know, chrome bullet tanks, you'd have headlights that were like powered by a D-cell flashlight battery that was a really weak little light, but it's still kind of this cool chrome torpedo that rode on top of the front fender, Um, it's really neat when you can, you know resurrect something like this, or at least get it into a state of preservation, where it's going to be safe and preserved and enjoyed, you know, either visually or ridden.
1: You know, and part of Chris's love of the old bikes, it's clearly an appreciation for the fact they're American-made and that they represent this amazing level of craftsmanship you don't see in mass manufacturing so much anymore. But the love is also what I would call generational. Um, like me, Chris was born in the late 1960s.
2: For a lot of us, uh, especially you know people our age, um, you know, we grew up in the era of America's suburbia where it was a normal thing on the weekends for, hey, you know, come back when it's dark, go ride your bike with your friends, turn the TV off, go spend the weekend out on your bike. And for a lot of kids um, growing up in the United States, it was their first taste of self-determined kind of freedom. It also gave kids like a sense of ownership, sense of pride. You would... Um, you took care of your bike. Uh, it was your transportation. I remember being as excited for my first bike as, like, I got for a car.
1: You know, I think that self-determined freedom concept, that hasn't really gone away. And um, during the pandemic, a lot of out-of-commission bikes were finding their way to the shop where Chris was working at them. They'd come in as trade-ins. With a little elbow grease and maybe a few new parts, so you could make those trade-ins, you know, as good as new. Now, around that same time, he noticed there was a group of kids in the neighborhood. He, he knew these kids, riding their bikes around near where he lives in North Kirkland. School was online, so the, you know, the kids are out of school, and they're out and about with not much else to do. Now, in this group, he also noticed a new kid who had recently moved with his family from the Middle East. But this kid wasn't on a bike. He was running after the pack of kids on foot. So, Chris fixed up a little Blue Trek BMX bike he'd just taken in his tray, put new grips and new tires on it.
2: And I walked over to the kid's house that night and just knocked on the door, and the dad at first was like, What? And I explained to him in Arabic that I was the bike fairy. And I gave his son a bike, and the kids' eyes got huge. And the rest of it kind of snowballed from there because I watched the neighborhood kids teach that kid how to ride a bike. And then that kid's learning how to ride a bike. Well, then he's also learning English and he's also getting friends. And then when the schools reopened, um, it turns out like Half of those kids that he'd been riding around with all through COVID were his new classmates, so I got to see that little bike actually help integrate a kid into his new life here. Yeah, and that
1: that was bike number one that Chris provided to the kid in his neighborhood. When I visited a few weeks ago, he was putting the finishing touches on the hundred and fourth bike he's wow. given to a kid. And so since since twenty twenty, <laughs> so we'll have photos at my Northwest and contact information for Chris for Chris Sharp and Sharp Cycle Works at my Northwest. But just a cool little nostalgic thing looked I mean you had a, you must have had a bike when you were a kid I sure it? did did it yeah. have one of those tanks with the battery in it with a light it, on the front? no it did not <laughs> actually my my uh, I can uh, relate to this
0: because my grandfather was very handy and he would take old bikes he li- lived in uh, the the city in the Bronx and um he refurbished them um, we we were very uh, a very thrifty family when I was growing up. There was uh, I I never got a new bike, but uh, Grandpa refurbished a bike for me. Nice. Uh, since I didn't live in one of the subdivisions, but we lived on like a a, a couple of acres near a, a farm. There was really no place to ride it. So I rode it around the lawn. First thing to do, I'd mow the lawn. Then I got on the bike and ride around on it just to yeah. check my work. But it, it, I, I do, uh, I can't remember that that liberating feeling when yeah.
1: I uh, finally got there. Now, you thing. weren't wearing a little newsboy cap on one of these bikes was where the not. front wheels 10 feet wide, right? No. This is like, this is in the 1950s we're talking no, about. No, right? okay. that's right. Okay. It was not, not, the, not 1800s. the 1890s. Yeah. Okay. yeah.
0: Thank you, Felix, for that. <laughs> All of Felix's features are at mynorthwest.com. 637 Seattle's morning news. Accusations of mishandling sexual assault cases are being made against the King County Prosecutor's Office. A government watchdog group is now asking for a state and federal investigation. With the story, Karen News Radio's Matt Markovich.
3: The father of a 16-year-old sexual assault survivor believes public safety is at risk after prosecutors in the juvenile division failed to press charges against his daughter's attacker. Prosecutors say there wasn't enough evidence, in their opinion, to win the case. That prompted Attorney Jackson Maynard, executive director of the Citizen Action Defense Fund, to send a letter to the state attorney general and the U.S. attorney to investigate.
4: It was completely for a political purpose. It's aimed at this political goal of we just don't. Want to hold juveniles accountable.
3: The division charged 17% of juvenile sexual assault cases sent to them last year. In Missoula, Montana, the rate was just below that, at 16.4%, and that prompted a Department of Justice investigation. It found the low rate was a result of systemic undercharging issues, and it led to the district attorney losing their job. Maynard's letter alleges the division has a political motive to keep case filings low because of County Executive Dial Constantine's intent to close the juvenile detention center and have. Suspects enter diversion programs run by nonprofits rather than enter the juvenile justice system.
4: Policy decision was made that they were going to close the juvenile detention center. And then everything they did was to drive the numbers in such a way that would support this policy decision. And that was irrespective of what they were seeing on the ground. That was irrespective of the significant, serious offenses.
3: A half hour before the complaint was made public, King County Prosecutor Lisa Mannion sent an email to Constantine and King County Council members saying a 2021 audit found no wrongdoing in charging practices by Prosecutors and the 17% figure is misleading. Saying, "quote There's an oft-repeated adage that prosecutors can simply file charges and let the jury decide what sticks." She says that adage does not reflect the ethical obligation to not file charges where there is insufficient evidence. Insufficient evidence is what was told to the father whose daughter was sexually assaulted. No arrests, no charges, despite plenty of evidence of a crime, says the father. Maynard says changes are needed.
4: Uh, They can't just create their own decision that juveniles are just not going to be held accountable anymore, not going to be responsible for their acts under the law. And that's exactly what was going on, and that's why the U.S. Attorney's Office and the AG's office need to step in and take a look at this.
0: Matt Markovich, Cairo News Radio, a subject that's often brought up when we talk about race relations in this country, white male privilege. David Goldenkrantz is a diversity consultant. His dad is a regular listener who said, Dave, you need to read my son's book. So I did. It's titled White Male Privilege, How This Happened and Why It Is Even Worse Than We Thought. And what shocked me and why I thought this was worth doing an interview about is that he starts the book taking on white progressives like himself.
5: I think progressive folks in America are often some of the most stereotyped, prejudiced and biased and the most unaware of those biased, prejudiced and stereotyped. The, the progressive piece is just that folks will take action, right? They will vote. They will go out in the streets. They will they will talk about the things that they want to see differently and change. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're willing to take the internal journey and to really look inside and realize like, wow, I hold some of these deep-seated beliefs and these fears and these prejudices. These are things we're conditioned into. Like by nature and by design of living in a society built on white supremacy, it is impossible not to inherit and inhibit some of these beliefs and ideas, or Mm -hmm. inhabit some of these beliefs and ideas.
0: Even even if you're not from the South. So you're saying, we're not just talking about white Southerners. We're talking about Northern white progressives.
5: Well, let me ask you this. Who benefited economically? Was it just the South when it came to the slave trade?
0: Mm -hmm. No.
5: No. We know this, right? We know that Northerners, the large Northern economy, was entirely based on what was happening in the South. And- A lot, a lot of powerful white men in the North attacked the idea of secession for the fear that their entire means of making untold sums of money would go away. They didn't care about the morals or ethics of slavery. They cared about how they were going to make money. There have always been people in the North who are, um, I will just say, afraid of the other. There's an expression that actually is used a lot in the black community where they say in the South – They don't necessarily care how close you get as long as you don't get too high up, Mm -hmm. right? The idea, though, in the North is that they don't necessarily care how high up you get as long as you don't get too close. The North is notorious for segregation.
0: He also documents where the term white came from, a term that's used to document people who are actually not always white, a diverse group of uh, European descent. For example... Uh, My heritage is Italian and German Uh, The Italian side of the family Would have considered themselves Italian They would never have called themselves white Yet according to any census form You check white So I asked David why that's the case
5: You know, one of the things I find fascinating about Seattle Is we're sort of founded on Scandinavian culture On this sort of like You know, you talk about the Seattle freeze That's a direct result of Scandinavian culture It's kind of mind your own business Don't really be out, you know Don't be out in the open Just kind of like keep to your own and, And just, you know, keep your head down That's very different than Italian culture. That's very different than, you know, somebody coming over from Spain. And to your point is Italy, Italians are notoriously outspoken, right? We talk about the Irish too. When the Irish came here, there was a lot of terms for them, right? Right. It took them at least half a century to even be considered white. Same thing Mm -hmm. with Italians. So the thing is, like, we can all say that, you know, we're trying to escape whiteness, but ultimately that doesn't that doesn't allow us to get away from the privileges and access and sort of the ways in which our society allows just a visible physical perception of my Mm -hmm. presence. So
0: I can't resign from the white club and try to reassert my Italian slash German identity.
5: Unfortunately, it's not that simple, Dave. And I think that's kind of, because there's
0: nothing good that comes up when you Google white these days.
5: No, I mean, but also again, this is where people get, uh, this is the idea of like, we can't, necessarily spend our time beating up individual white people this isn't about attacking individual white folks it's about looking at the concept of whiteness itself Mm. there was a time before whiteness existed before anybody would have ever used that term to describe themselves you know there was a point at which a lot of folks came here especially jews would come to america they didn't understand what whiteness was like it had to be like essentially almost explained to them because it's not like there was some international, you know, news mogul that was going to explain to them, like when you get to America, mm-hmm. you're going to be indoctrinated into this concept. Well, whiteness, unfortunately also is for export at this point, right? We we've exported white supremacy culture. So now, you know, ironically, where we talk about our European ancestry, well, whiteness began in America and it has since spread to Europe.
0: If you want to hear more, and there is a lot more to hear in this interview, it's all posted on the Ross Files podcast page. David Goldenkrantz, the author of White Male Privilege. Coming up in today's commentary, I scold the founding fathers. Let's talk about the big Colorado Supreme Court decision. I talked with CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum. The court, by a bare majority of four to three, decided to disqualify Donald Trump from appearing on the 2024 primary ballot. Now, that decision has been immediately suspended. So, uh, as things stand now, he will be on the ballot. Of course, this is going to the U.S. Supreme Court. Anyway, I want to ask Thane's opinion Does he buy the majority's logic for this ruling?
6: Not really. I also don't like the fact that when they Said at one point, they ruled or concluded that he had extorted the, crowd, extorted the crowd to go over to commit violence on the Capitol. That's actually not what happened. So that is an ongoing issue of what was he saying at the ellipse. And under Supreme Court precedent for the First Amendment, Dave, you have to engage in language that it causes imminent lawlessness and violence. And the language has to be very specific. So when he said, let's go over there and peacefully and patriotically um, uh, make our voices heard, that is protected speech. Even if he said, fight, 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 he didn't, you know, he used it as a euphemism. So I just thought that they played fast and loose with what he said. What they did, which was fascinating, is they changed the whole nature of the First Amendment. They said, I don't really care what he said on that day at the ellipse. We should start back at 216 when he got elected. This tweet, that speech, that statement, if you tie them all together, that causes an insurrection. That's just not Supreme Court precedent, Dave. That's not how it works. You don't get to pick and choose all the things that he said. It's what did he say on that day? So there's just plenty here to appeal. Uh, but it is an interesting decision.
0: Yeah. Now, the dissenters also pointed out that this lacked due process because the majority basically found him guilty of insurrection without holding a trial. It, it basically used some of the evidence that's now in the in the public record. But, you know, it didn't call witnesses. There was no discovery, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just curious, what would be. We're still trying to figure out what's the proper procedure for deciding that a candidate is disqualified from the ballot, whether it's for, you know, age, having served before, or insurrection. Is there any formal procedure in place for conducting such an investigation?
6: Well, remember, what you just described are disqualifying features of the Constitution, like age and residency and citizenship. That's pretty immutable right you either were born in this country like arnold schwarzenegger was not born in this country Mm -hmm. so the fact that he served two terms as governor of california doesn't make a difference if he said i want to be on the ballot of course, the state Supreme Court could step in and say, no, you can't. You're mm-hmm. disqualified.
0: Well, but let me interrupt you because there was a controversy over Barack Obama's birth certificate, right? So somebody could try to call into question somebody's citizenship. And as far as I know, there's no formal procedure for determining who's right in a case like that, except, you know, public opinion.
6: Yeah, except that, again, the what the court did here was a finding of fact, which is the point that you're making. They unilaterally determined without a trial. Remember, Donald Trump was never, forget a trial, he was never even charged with the crime. He was never criminally charged for the insurrection. There is that federal case in Washington, D.C. that's made up of a number of counts, none of which is our insurrection charges. So the Supreme Court here is a huge leap where a court without, as you said, without a jury present, without the presentation of evidence, has unilaterally decided Again, in contravention of the First Amendment's protection of speech to say all the things that you did as president said and tweeted and did caused this insurrection. And besides which, it's not just that you caused it. We're ruling it was an insurrection. There, there's been no legal determination of that, too. Remember that. Build an argument.
0: We're hearing from CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum. So the question is, will this ruling make it through the U.S. Supreme Court? I asked Thane for his opinion on that.
6: I think, Dave, the interesting question is how many of the democratically appointed justices will vote against Colorado? How many of them will line up with Republicans and say, you know, the Fourteenth Amendment disqualification clause and insurrection clause really doesn't apply to these facts. just doesn't. Uh, you know, the disqualification clause was really there for the Confederate generals that wanted to run
2: for office.
6: And the president, remember, in Section 3, Dave, it lists the number of people that you can't run for office. In other words, titles. You can't run for Congress. You can't run for Senate. You can't be an elector if you engage in an insurrection. You know what they don't mention? president. president. Yeah. So, so there is an interesting argument there that it it completely condemns <laughs> well, the president anyway.
0: Well, the court, well, the Colorado, the majority of the court brought that up and said so. Therefore, Congress would be would have been okay with Jefferson Davis becoming president.
6: <laughs> it's true, uh, except that they're referring to not their Confederate, that their president, but our president. Yeah. Right? meaning the union would have to have been. <laughs> it doesn't apply to Abraham Lincoln but it applied to Jefferson Davis because Lincoln wasn't really causing an insurrection. He was just defending the union. But again, you're right. It's a tricky point. You know, why did, why did Congress leave him out? But one question is to say, is the oath different? You know, they're saying, you have to swear an oath to defend the Constitution. Yeah. Do congresspersons and senators take a different oath than the president? Why leave the president out unless they thought it doesn't really apply to him? Because why would he try to insurrect his own government? Right? Well, why would he take over yeah. his own well, government?
0: Well, that, that, that is the, the, the novel thing here. We've never had a president who quite <laughs> behaved in this way. So Exactly. Yeah. All right. So, it, But it sounds like you don't think this is going to get very far.
6: I think it'll, I, I can't believe the Supreme Court won't agree to hear it. I'm sure they will. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to see how many of the liberal justices might vote with the conservatives here. I can't believe, remember, this is a very touchy subject. The founding fathers were really into representative democracy. They loved the idea of people going to their polling stations and casting their ballots. And so for a Supreme Court of Colorado to say to the citizens of the state, you can't vote for this guy. You can walk over there, do whatever you want, but you can't, you can't even write his name in the ballot. That is, if I was a Supreme Court justice, I would say, I'm not sure a court can do that. Unelected people for the Colorado Supreme Court make that decision of who they can vote for and who they can't. I just can't believe that this, this Supreme Court would say courts are allowed to make that decision, not Congress.
0: CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum. Thank you, Thane.
6: Anytime, Dave. Thank you.
7: It is time for the Daily Dose of Kindness now, brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. A young man is spreading joy in the town of McAllister, Oklahoma, where a small act of kindness has grown into one of the largest toy drives in the state. CBS's Nora O'Donnell with that story.
0: The line, more than three miles long. The gifts packed a drive through warehouse, and Santa and his helpers were ready for the big day. On this day, with the help of 4-H, more than 10,000 toys will be given away. It's the idea of 18-year-old Reed Markham, who started this seven years ago when he noticed his classmates needed school supplies.
5: And so that kind of clicked in my brain. It's like Christmas is not a cheap holiday. People are gonna struggle with this too.
6: Markham is helping people with that struggle. Awesome. Dude. Through
0: donations, he's given out more than 64,000 toys.
5: The holiday spirit it's in it's in everyone i mean it's the joy of giving it's not the joy of getting it's the joy of giving and seeing the people's reaction to what you're doing for them
7: oh i would agree on that one it was really cool to see such a visual story too from cbs with the cars lined up ready to give those toys so
0: it's g time from the g and ursula show with guest co-host jake skorheim today G. Scott, the Huskies are a big deal again. I remember when the Huskies were was the only football team in town. Actually, my first day at work, uh, January 2nd, 1978, Huskies won the Rose Bowl against Michigan. Right. And that was the big team in town. And so are the glory days back?
7: Um, the, the glory day is here right now. you got to appreciate where you are right now. And as of right now... I, it could be argued that this is the greatest husky team of all time now the last husky team won a national championship they were 12 and 0 mm-hmm. this current team is 13 and 0 so right yep. so there yep. there's that then back then also there was those games were subjective of it was kind of like okay this team should be in and this team should be in it There was no were, real playoff structure it, right either. right so now this is a playoff structure and I believe that the Huskies have a really good chance of winning this game. Uh, but there was, was some other news in there, right? Yeah, Kalen DeBoer. Whoo! He deserves Best it. coach in college football. Now, who who votes on that? Uh, the, the AP, the writers, yeah. and, and all the—look, I have been saying this uh since the last uh quarter of the year. He is definitely if he w- if he w- were to win out and his team were to win out, he is the coach of the year. It's not even a question. Now, how close you to the team? What's the what's the uh, the secret
0: I, sauce there? I don't have any connection to the team.
7: Oh wait, how close is he? Wait. No, see, no I'm just asking what what's what do you know about his coaching style? Oh, 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 oh. Well, he was he was doing really well. I mean, he had never been on the big-time stage like this, but yeah. uh, he was at Fresno. Fresno stayed down there and, and doing his thing, and he's come up here. i got to be honest, Dave. I didn't think that he would come to the University of Washington and be successful. I did not. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. I judged it off of the salary that he got when he came in. I thought, hmm, that's kind of a lower salary for, you know, uh, Okay. Then I also was just seeing kind of just how where college football was going, where a lot of the recruits were going. They weren't really staying here in Washington, right? But you still have some – not to say that they don't have good players, because they do. They do have good players. And what has happened previous, Chris Peterson left. uh, uh, Jimmy, uh, the next coach, he was let go. And then – Here's Kalen DeBoer, and he comes here with his University of Washington team. I'm like, mm, we'll see. And then he was kind of successful. He was pretty pretty decent. But this right here is what you call lightning in the bottle, right? Uh, Michael Penix Jr. had right. him the last couple of years. And so a long story short is this. Here's what I believe. I believe Kalen DeBoer is the type of coach that just comes in, obviously, and understands how to create a good culture. No different than a good boss and or CEO. No different than what we see happening with the Raiders over there in Las Vegas. They had a coaching change, and all of a sudden the Raiders start playing better with the same players. And with the University of Washington, they've won like six or seven games this season with with one score less. So that tells you that you have a bunch of young men that believe in their coach. You have a coach that believes in a player. And you when you win close games like that, Dave, that is a real shining example of a real culture. And I think that they get ready to go down to play this bowl game against Texas. I think they have a real opportunity to win that compared to in 2016 when they played Alabama. I thought they had no shot. They have a real shot to win this game. So DeBoer is like the U-Dub's Ted Lasso. Yeah, I guess you can call it that. I I don't know personally his style. Mm -hmm. I've never. Crazy thing is, is I've never met the man a day in my life. I've never had a conversation with him. But obviously, obviously, you come to do this, and you go off all of the experts, all of the sports people out there. Nobody, nobody even thought you Dub would win the Pac-12. Rest in peace, Mm Pac-12. Nobody thought that they would win that. Let alone go thirteen and zero on the season I know this is in, incredible even husky fans will look in the mirror and say yeah I didn't know how to go th- 13 and 0. <laughs> so but
0: so uh, I, I guess just to, d- to double check this uh this analysis is it, it
7: it's it's beyond just uh Michael Penix. there's there's oh yeah oh yeah it's uh, it's beyond Michael Penix is here here's here's an example I'll give you an example um I can't remember a game it was, but if there was a an Achilles heel for the University of Washington. I would say it has, in the past, people would say, well, the defense. The defense was kind of giving up some points. And I don't know who it was against this season. I, I can't remember. But the defense had given up like 28 points in the first half. And so you fans out there, correct me. I'm sorry. I don't get the team. But they gave up 28 points in the first half. And it's like, oh, boy, here we go. But in the second half, they gave up zero. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Did the players change? No. It's the same players. Again, it goes back to what I'm talking about. It's that culture. It's that belief. So what is happening is is you're seeing Kalen DeBoer and the magic that is happening over there. And in football, that's the beauty of it. It's not just always talent. So it's not just Kalen DeBoer. It's not just Michael Penix. It's everybody on that team. That was against a good team, too. It was Utah. It was Utah. Okay. I couldn't remember. but but, They were good. Oh, my goodness. There you go. Thanks.
0: G Scott, thank you. In our never-ending search for positive economic news, we uh, stumbled upon a news release from Representative Derek Kilmer, who represents the 6th District, announcing a million dollars in new federal funding from the Economic Development Administration for a couple of projects on the Olympic Olympic Peninsula. So we thought we'd get him on to tell us where the money's going. Representative Kilmer, of course, is not running for re-election, so you can speak frankly now. You are completely unfettered by further political ambition. Uh, But first of all, tell us about this grant going to your district.
4: This is really good news, Dave. uh, There are two planning grants that are going to – one to the north end of the Olympic Peninsula – and the other to Grays Harbor County. But where this is really exciting is these are grants that are targeted at distressed communities to try to figure out how to close the jobs gap that a lot of uh, communities in our region have, have felt for now decades. The grant to the north end of the Olympic Peninsula, though, comes along with the designation as a finalist for some really big money for up to $50 million in Phase two. There were more than 560 communities around the country that competed 22 were named finalists and the fact that the north end of the olympic peninsula is one of those 22 now competing for somewhere between 20 and 50 million dollars uh in the spring is really exciting and presents some real opportunity for areas that need a hand
0: now here in uh, the seattle area we have basically taken uh, economic prosperity for granted but not so on some of the communities that you represent so which areas are we talking about and what exactly is the nature of these programs? What, what kind of jobs are being created there?
4: Yeah. So, you know, if you look at, I, I was in high school in Port Angeles, uh, when the timber industry re- really took it on the chin, so a lot of my friends, parents uh, lose their jobs. A lot of my neighbors lose their jobs and that's really, you know, sort of altered my entire adult life. I, you know, I, I, Studied economic development because of that experience, and and you know the reality is the you know communities like Port Angeles and Forks and Aberdeen and Hoquam are, aren't unique in that regard. Uh, you know you have communities that used to export wood products all over the world, and now there's a real fear that their main export is going to be young people, and that's what's exciting about this is it lets these communities envision you know a, a economy 2.0 for the. Um, North end of the peninsula for communities like uh, uh, those in Clallam County, those in Jefferson County. You know, part of the conversation is re-envisioning not just the, the timber industry into something that's more focused on innovative wood products, things that allow for the use of smaller diameter logs but also uh, looking at uh, opportunities in the historic maritime industry. And that's what the north end of the peninsula's proposal to the economic development administration laid out. The, the whole view of this program. And, and I, I really do appreciate the Biden administration's leadership on this is just a recognition that no matter what zip code folks live in, they should have a shot. They should have economic opportunity. We cannot leave entire communities behind. And, The fact that 22 communities around the country are being uh, uh, given some support from the federal government and the fact that there's an opportunity for more help to come is, I think, really exciting news.
0: So is the timber industry coming back? Uh, I mean, I, I don't see environmental rules, for example, being rolled back. I've I've heard of certainly innovative ways of uh, logging timber that are considered more environmentally responsible. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the, the, it strikes me that the you know the glory days, the the clear cutting days, are over, right?
4: Yeah. So you know, I don't think, and I don't think you know. So if you if you head out to the Olympic Peninsula, when people talk about these industries. It's with a focus on the future, not with a focus on the past. It's with a sense of, for example, the you know the opportunities that exist around things like cross laminated timber, which is an innovative wood product that's super durable that the defense department has started to use. There is a innovation center in Port Angeles that's looking at trying to weave together recycled composite materials like those that are used in Boeing airplanes along with cross laminated timber for Mm. some super durable uh, products. You know, these are things we didn't envision when I was a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s, but really represents new opportunity for new jobs. Uh, And and that's what folks are excited about. So the you know, the types of investments that we're looking at are, are things like trying to build a Natural Resources Innovation Center to rethink what this might look like, sort of Timber 2.0, to have a workforce strategy that's built around, you know, where the, you know, the, it's like good hockey, right? You want to skate to where the <laughs> puck is going, yeah. not where it is now. And so having workforce development opportunities that are, you know, sort of tied into those opportunities. So uh, I, I couldn't be more thrilled that the Biden administration, that the Economic Development Administration has seen the value of the work that folks are doing out on the Olympic Peninsula, both down in Grays Harbor County and on the north end of the peninsula. It it really is a testament to these communities as well that they're pulling together, right? You've got the business community and cities and counties and ports and tribes all saying, we want to make sure that there's opportunities for our kids, that we don't want folks to feel like they have to move and uh and and you know to your point there are communities that take economic prosperity for granted these are communities that are desperate to see more opportunity and the fact that we're seeing some federal government uh, support for that is just really good news
0: good so there's more than one way to run a a wood-based economy that's that's good to know now i got to ask you since uh, since you are uh in your uh your almost retiring phase here um <laughs> Is there gonna be a shutdown or not? This has been below the radar, but I know the deadline is still there. So are we cruising for a shutdown or uh do we do we not have to worry about that?
4: Well, I'm not a hand wringer, so I don't know that worrying is good, but we've we've got a lot of work to do to get it done. And it, it, it is if I were in Vegas right now, I'm not sure I'd be placing any bets. But the the problem is There's still not an agreement on what is the overall size of the spending pie, how much will go to defense, and how much will go to non-defense. Now, you hear me say that, and you may ask, but Derek, I thought there was an agreement back in May when there was a deal on the debt limit when Kevin McCarthy, Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, and Hakeem Jeffries all shook hands and said, this will be the size of the pie, this is how much will go to defense, and this will go to non-defense. And if you ask me that, I would say, Dave, (laughs) you're right there was a deal the problem is the freedom caucus in the house um balked at it and as a consequence house republican leadership reneged on the deal and you know so that basically stalled out the car um my hope is that cooler heads prevail that people recognize that if anything can get done in washington dc it means at the very least people keeping their word when there is an agreement um and if they do, the you know it'll still be a, a mad dash to get it done. The, the, there's not a ton of time uh, between now and January, and obviously the House and the Senate are now home for the holidays. So uh, I, 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 I am hopeful that there can an, uh, can be an agreement on uh, top line spending numbers, and then this can get done without a shutdown. I, I think it's really important for folks to understand: shutdowns are really dumb and they're really damaging. The, you know, the if you work at the naval shipyard in Kitsap County, if you work for the park service, you know, that that hurts your job and it, you know, it hurts your ability to earn a paycheck. But it also hurts if you're, you know, a hotel owner near the national park or near the shipyard or if you're a restaurant owner because it turns out when they shut the national park down, you know, fewer people come out to stay in hotels and yep. to eat at restaurants. And so You know, this is something that, you know, persistently Congress is playing with fire. Um, You know, my hope is that people recognize, hey, a deal's a deal. Let's let's you know, listen, there were folks who on both sides of the aisle who said, well, I don't really like all the elements of this deal. I was one of them who didn't love every element of this deal. But once, you know, once we voted for it, once it passed, let's move forward rather than moving backwards.
0: Representative Derek Kilmer, 6th District, Congressman, thank you very much.
4: You bet. Thanks, Dave.
0: Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross.
7: And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930.
0: And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.